All right, welcome. You can open up in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We've been working through section by section this little Old Testament book. I'd like you to turn in there. We're going to be looking at chapter, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. And in Jonah, as you know, we've met someone who is not quite all in with God and God's commands and God's purposes in his life. Jonah does not want to obey the Lord. We saw in chapter 1, the first few verses, when God came to him in the Word and told him to go to Nineveh, he rose and disobeyed. He went the opposite direction. He's not all in. He's not a man committed at this point in his life. He's not a man that's willing to take any risks. He is not a man that's willing to inconvenience himself at this point to follow the Lord. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites. They were his enemies. He was not all in. It was a command he did not want to follow. It causes us to ask ourselves a question, are we all in with God and his purposes for us? Are you all in with God and his purposes for you? What does your life revolve around? What is the sun around which your life orbits? What has the most gravitational pull in your life? What is the one thing around which you make decisions, schedule your life, plan your future? What is your life revolving around right now? Uh, People do all kinds of different things with their lives, revolve their lives around all kinds of different things. Some families' lives are revolving around their children. Some couples' lives are revolving around their jobs or their pursuit of a career or a certain lifestyle. Some people's lives are revolving around their hobbies. They're all in with those things. Some people I've seen will go all in for the certain lifestyle they want, and so they're all in with their career. And it'll absolutely dominate them. They're up early. They're out late. They're hustling all day to get their work done and maybe stuff on the side. It's somewhat of an anchor in their life. It's something of an identity to them. Their life and the quality of their life is determined in part at least by the ladder that they're climbing and how far up to the top they can get. Some people are all in with hobbies. They'll take the classes They'll learn the skills. They'll buy the stuff. They'll do everything they can to accumulate for themselves things related to these hobbies and they'll devote their lives to them. People are amazing in their ability to be so focused on going all in in a certain thing. To be totally revolving their life for a cause or for a love, a commitment that they've made. I remember reading about a young man named Jack Lucas in a book called The Flags of Our Fathers about World War II. Jack Lucas is a remarkable young man. At 14, he talked his way into the Marines. He fooled the recruits, telling them he was older than he actually was. He got assigned to drive a truck in Hawaii. He grew frustrated because he didn't want to just drive a truck. He wanted to be on the front lines of battle. He ended up figuring out a way to stow away on a transport out of Honolulu. He survived on food, passed along to him by others on the ship. He ended up making his way to land on Iwo Jima. He had no rifle. On the first day, he found one of his friends dead on the beach, was able to take the rifle for his own. 
crawling through the mess, bullets flying everywhere. The story goes, Jack and his three comrades were crawling through a trench when eight Japanese sprang up in front of him. Jack shot one of them, his rifle jammed. As he struggled with the grenade, it landed at his feet. He yelled a warning to the others and rammed the grenade into the soft ash. Immediately another grenade rolled in and Jack Lucas, at this point 17 years old, fell on both grenades. He writes that he remembered thinking in that moment, Luke, you're going to die. He survived. And during 21 reconstructive operations, he became the nation's youngest Medal of Honor winner and the only high school freshman to have ever received it. Isn't it amazing what people will do for a cause that they're committed to? Isn't it remarkable what great lengths and what risks people will take when there's a cause that they find so compelling that they will dive on grenades, they'll sneak on ships, they will go to the front lines, they will do whatever it takes to do that which they're passionate about. How much more should the Christian who knows the reality of heaven and hell who understands the glories of Jesus Christ, the eternal nature of heaven, the reality of impending judgment, how much more necessary is it that the Christian is all out passionately committed to the cause that God has given us? Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, How committed should we as a church be to that? How committed should you be as a Christian to this calling? Acts 1.8 You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are you all in? You can ask yourself that question. Are you you all in with this? Is this going to be like a hobby that you kind of pursue in the margin of your life? Or is this life all in, committed, passionate? One man once said, don't touch Christianity unless you're willing to seek the kingdom of heaven first. I promise you a miserable existence if you seek it second. I think one of the lessons we're learning from Jonah is that God wants you all in. God wants His people all in. And God calls us to be all in. To devote our entire lives to obedience to Jesus Christ. It is that which we learn like one might learn a hobby. It is that which we practice like one might practice a sport. It is that, that thing that we go all in, even willing to take risks like a soldier on the battlefield, like someone who needs to get trained and equipped. This is our call, to be all in. I don't think God wants us to be like a Jonah where we hear the Word of God and we kind of think that it's something optional that we might not really need to obey, that it's probably okay if we run. We are clearly saying that wasn't okay for Jonah. Certainly it's not okay for us. I think of Elizabeth Elliot, wife of the missionary who is 
killed by the people they were going to reach. Jim Elliot died at the hands of the people they were trying to reach with the gospel. And yet after he died, with rock-solid and fearless determination, Elizabeth made a commitment to go back to the very people who murdered her husband so that she could share the gospel. And as she prepared, she said this, I have one desire. You hear that? I have one desire. Now, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. She's all in. Now, I don't want to give the impression that going all in for God implies some sort of radical thing where you leave and go to a different country. It could be that. I don't want certainly to exclude that, but that is not the only way to be radically committed to Jesus Christ. Sometimes being radically committed to Jesus Christ is radically ordinary. Um, right now, uh, before bed, uh, as I put the girls down, Asher and I have been reading a series of little miniature biographies to our kids about women uh, who loved the Lord and who were faithful to serve Him. And I was struck by the examples of women who uh, so many people have never heard of and yet have done amazing things for God behind the scenes in really ordinary ways. Edith Schaefer supporting her husband Francis and her hospitality opening up her home to hundreds if not thousands, allowing them a place of comfort to hear the gospel. The same with Bethan Lloyd-Jones, wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, helping her husband be prepared to preach, but also, again, showing this kind of radical hospitality to anyone who would come in, serving the church in ways that would go unnoticed, but ways that were invaluable. So it's not about leaving. It's not about doing crazy, fanatic-type things. It's about an all-out, one-desire, one-passion-type commitment to obedience to the Word of God. So I think Jonah is forcing us to ask, are we more like Jonah? Or are we more like Jesus? Who said, it is the will of the Father that is my food. <laughs> It is, I am here to do the will of my Father. Are you all in with Christ? It's a good question to ask, and maybe a good diagnostic question for you would be this. If everyone were as committed to the church as you, how well would it function? If everyone was as committed as me, how well would it function? Maybe you can ask yourself that later today or later this week and really evaluate some things about your life because we don't want to be Jonah. We don't want to be ready to obey only when the Word seems to align with our already preconceived desires. We want to be ready to do whatever God calls us to do even if the Word disrupts our comforts and conveniences. And so what happens to Jonah? By way of review, we remember in chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to him, verse 1, it calls him to go to Nineveh, the great city. He goes the opposite direction. The Lord uh, is tracking him down, though. The Lord has a redemptive plan that will not be stopped. He's running away from God, but God's running after him. It eventually gets to the point where the sailors on the ship that Jonah has gotten into recognize that this storm is of divine origin, they recognize that there's nothing they can do to stop it themselves, that it just keeps getting worse and worse. They don't know what to do. Jonah tells them, hey, throw me into the water. They, they do that. The sea calms down. The sailors get saved. 
recognizing the God behind the storm. They begin to worship him in chapter 1, verse 16. At that point, let's just pause. You've heard the story of Jonah, I'm sure. At that point, let's just recognize what's happening. What is happening to Jonah? He's in the water. He's been fleeing from God, and he's beginning to go beneath the waves. He has done nothing but disobey. He has not pursued obedience at all. He has been a coward. He has been a hypocrite. And here he is now in the water. He doesn't know a fish is coming. He's basically asked the sailors to throw him off because he so desperately wants to avoid obedience to God's command. And now he's drowning, literally drowning to his death. What does it take for a man so high-handedly rebellious like Jonah to get turned around so he would actually obey? What, what, what does it take in a person's life who, who so desperately wants to follow his own agenda for his life that he's willing to high-handedly rebel against a clear word of God and run the opposite direction? What does it take to get him back onto the path of obedience? I mean, maybe you've, you've known people, maybe you've been the person who is so high-handedly following your own heart, following your own passions, and with zero desire to obey the Word of God. What does it take for that kind of person to be so transformed, to be so turned around, to be brought to a different direction? Because we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4 of Jonah, although his obedience is far from perfect, in chapter 3 we see the Word of God come back to Jonah, and we see Jonah get up and go to Nineveh like he's supposed to. God turned him around. Well, what does it take to get there? What turns a man like that around? What, takes a, what does it take to get a hard heart in rebellion up and go in the direction of obedience? Well, that's what we're going to see in chapter 2. I want to show what God does to turn Jonah around. And we're going to realize this is very instructive for us as we seek continually to turn ourselves from sin to Christ and to obedience. So let's read. Let's start at chapter 1, verse 17, and then we'll read through all of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the fish. Sorry, he didn't pray to the fish. (laughs) That would be heresy. That would be idolatry. He did not do that. Let's make that clear. (laughs) Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. 
yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The prayer in chapter 2 seems so utterly foreign to the character of Jonah in chapter 1, doesn't it? God has done something radical and deep in the heart of this man, Jonah. Now, I want to see what Jonah is learning and what God is teaching him in the belly of the fish. I want to to look at, through the content of Jonah's prayer, what Jonah is realizing. And this is so instructive for us because this is the stuff we need to realize that will prevent us from doing what Jonah did in the first place. And so let's start with our, our first observation here. What does Jonah learn in the belly of the fish? Here's here's the first thing Jonah learns. Jonah learns he is utterly unable to save himself. Utterly unable to save himself. At the beginning of his prayer, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress. That word distress has the idea of extreme agitation of the soul. There is something deep going on within him, in his heart. He is distressed. He mentions in that same verse, the second verse, out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word that includes the idea of separation from God. It is the, it is the place where, you read it in the Old Testament, it's the place where the dead go. And it does have ideas, it has connotations of separation from God. He feels as if he's being swallowed by death itself, perhaps even hell itself. It is causing within him a deep distress. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your ways and your billows passed over me. He's recognizing that this whole thing is of divine origin. You cast me. These are your waves. These are your billows. This is your storm, God. The waves, the wind, it's all coming from God. And he recognizes this. And I think at this point, he knows God is angry with him. He knows it. He knows he's deserving of divine judgment at this point. He has to be. He's recognizing it as coming from the hand of God. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. That has the idea of banishment. This has the idea of being forced out. Jonah feels in his prayer that he has no longer any right to be in the presence of God and that God in his holiness is banishing Jonah from his presence. He's feeling rejected. It's the idea of Jonah being wakened to his own sin, being awakened to the depths of his sin, and at the same time understanding that a holy God cannot accept him into his presence and that he must pay for his sin. He recognizes, I am being 
cast out from the presence of God. I am being driven away. I am being banished. I have sinned and I will pay for it, he's feeling at that moment. Verse 6, partially through it, he goes, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's the sense of there's no going back now. There's no hope now. I'm going down the land whose bars locked me in up forever. I've been banished from God. I've sinned against Him. I'm being swallowed up by death. There's no way out. I'm going to be in this watery grave, this prison cell of hell forever. That's how he was feeling as he's drifting down deeper into the sea. And look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, When I was fainting away, when I was slipping out of consciousness, at the moment I was about to die, at the critical moment when if he would go on under the deep any longer would be his life going on into eternity, it says right at that moment, I remembered the Lord. You see what God has done, obviously. God is harnessing the forces of nature to do exactly His bidding. God has harnessed this storm. God has appointed this fish. What does it take to get a high-handed, rebellious prophet to turn around and pursue obedience? What does it take? Listen, it will take a despair so great, so total, so devastating, so world-shattering, so heartbreaking, so pride-obliterating that we actually realize that God is all I have. Friends, this is how God still works. God still works this way. We see it in Jonah that for God to grab a hold of Jonah's heart, he must first bring him into intense despair. Total despair. Devastating, world-crushing hopelessness. You say, God would do that? God is so kind that He would do that. Because it's in the despair that He learns to look to God. Because we are so proud as fallen creatures that we will scrape and claw with our own strength as long as we can until God absolutely convinces us that we are unable to help ourselves. We're always trying to do things in our own strength. Every day we're tempted to do things in our own strength. But God is too kind and He will often bring us to places of devastation and despair. Why? Because He loves us. And He is merciful. And if He were to let us go without bringing us to despair, He would be... He has the right to do that. But we must remember that any time He brings us to a point of despair, it is because He is teaching us that He is the only deliverer. 
This is in the New Testament. This is in the writings of Paul. Listen to Paul. I was reading this the other morning, and I, I happened to come across it in my own de devotions, reading through 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's an amazing passage. Verse 8. Paul, speaking about him, himself and the apostles, he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired. The burden was so great that we gave up hope. We despaired of life itself, it says. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians is another clear passage that this is how God works. He will bring us to despair of life itself. He will make us feel that we receive the sentence of death. Why? What Paul says, it's to make us not rely on ourselves. Are you self-reliant ever? Oh, yes, we are. So often. And so God in His kindness will bring us to a position of despair to cut out from us any crutches we're trying to use that we've constructed so that we would fall upon the mercy of God and God alone. Think about the trauma that Jonah's going through. Just to think about this. Think about the physical trauma. Swallowed by a fish. I mean, that would have been certain death in almost every case apart from the divine intervention of God. He must have been in a constant state of near drowning. Uh, this would have been three days of barely enough air to survive. This is not Pinocchio in the belly of Monster of the Fish, if you know what I'm talking about in the Disney movie, where he's in there and there's a candle that he lights and he's looking around and it's all kind of nice in there. This is like being zipped into a body bag filled with water. Like this is something that's constraining cla claustrophobia of the highest degree would have set in after a short period of time. There's no spreading out in the belly of a fish. There's no stretching your legs. You get a cramp in the belly of a fish, you just deal with it. You can't do anything about that. On top of this, scholars have noted that in the belly of a fish, stomach acids would have been eating away, burning at the skin of Jonah. It was probably horribly unbearable because if he were to then be scratching the itch of the acid burning away, he's probably also at the same time peeling away his soggy skin. I mean, this is a kind of agony that we probably have never experienced. But we also understand that there's a spiritual agony going on, isn't there? This is what's happening in his heart. He's recognizing, as we've just read, the distress that his sin has caused. This is something like the misery that comes after you've pursued sin and suddenly your conscience wakes up and you recognize the cost of your sin. You, you've gone down the path, you've gone down the path of sin, and suddenly, by the grace of God, your conscience wakes up and you recognize the depravity of your sin, the, the, the filthiness of your sin. And you are feeling what is kind of a foretaste of hell, something so gross, you realize you are so wicked. There's a conviction 
The proddings of the conscience have been so ignored and now being awakened to the reality of the consequences of sin, you are feeling totally hopeless. I don't know if anyone has ever come to realize the reality of total depravity by simply being told about it. That's one of those doctrines that you can teach till you're blue in the faith until someone experiences it deep down in their hearts recognizing their own personal inability to love God as they should, their own personal inability to obey the way they should. It's almost it's one of those things, you can have it up here, but it doesn't get here until you really fail. Until you really get driven to the point of desperation. And God is good to bring people to that point, isn't He? Where we experience this reality of our own sin. Friends, God is so merciful and so committed to you that He will bring you low. Maybe lower than you ever thought you would go. Health will deteriorate. Marriages will get hard. Children will wander. Pressure will mount. Jobs will be lost. Relationships will be tense. Why? To teach you you're helpless. To show you you're desperate. So that in your desperation you would cry out to God and receive His strength. A.W. Pink wrote that one of the principal designs of our gracious Heavenly Father in the ordering of the past, in the appointing of our testings and trials, in the discipline of His love, is to bring us to the end of ourselves. To show us our own powerlessness. To teach us to have no confidence in the flesh. Why? that His strength may be perfected in our conscious and realized weakness. God will empty you of your perceived strength. God will drive you to your knees. And He will be good to do so. Because in those moments, He is teaching you that He is a foundation that you can stand on. He is a rock. He is a refuge. He is your strength. He is your hope. Do you boast that you're a self-reliant person? Are you a get-it-done-yourself kind of person? Are you an I-can kind of person? God will bring us low. He brought Jonah low to the point of this great distress that Jonah would finally remember the Lord. I want to show you the second thing that Jonah will learn in this most effective of classrooms, the belly of the fish. He secondly learns this, that all other hopes are utter folly. All the other hopes that he could possibly put his life into are absolutely folly. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 
anyone who's looking to idols, anyone who's looking to that which is not God, to give them that which they think they need, are actually, listen, forsaking their hope of steadfast love. The Hebrews, hesed, love. That is the kind of love that is covenant love, constant love, promised love, the love that God has for His people. And what Jonah realizes in the belly of the fish, that if I live a life of idolatry, and anyone who lives a life pursuing things that are not the true and living God, they're running away from love. I mean, how insane is that? To pursue idols is to run away from omnipotent love. What's an idol? Well, obviously, we know in the, often in the Old Testament, the idol was the, the piece of wood or the piece of stone that was set up or carved and it was bowed down to and it was prayed to. And yet we know, and it is repeatedly taught throughout Scripture, that idols can get right into your heart, can't they? That they aren't necessarily wood, they aren't necessarily stone, they're not necessarily visible, but they're affections of the heart that have grown to be inordinately large for things that are not God. They are like a cancer growing on the heart. They are something that, that has so taken your heart that it begins to control your heart. It begins to be something that is ruling in your heart. It is that thing that you're looking to that brings you a sense of meaning in your life, a sense of value in your life, a sense of significance in your life. Because I have this, because I've done this, because I like this, I now feel like I matter in life. Jonah was obviously an idolater, though he did not have wood and stone to bow down to, but he was obviously, according to his background, what we've seen in previous sermons, that he was a patriot, and I think his patriotism was idolatrous patriotism, because he was more willing to fight for Israel and to fight against the enemies of Israel than he was to obey God. Whenever you find in your life a priority that is high and above and more ultimate than God's priorities for you, you've discovered an idol. These things could be anything. And often they're good things that become God things. And then they're bad things. It could be money. You want a certain amount of money. You're willing to do whatever you can to get that money. It's a ruling thing could be a career. You're sacrificing all kinds of things you need not be sacrificing to try to appease the idol of your career. It'll only let you down. could be sex. could be comfort. could be possessions. You could make an idol out of convenience. And every time your kids smash the idol of your convenience, there's fury and rage and wrath. Jonah in the belly of the fish realized to live for anything except God is to forsake the love of God. It is to run from one who would love you perfectly. This despair that Jonah is realizing in the fish is, is this. He's realizing that there are no other options for me. There are no other options for me in terms of what I'm going to live for. I live for any idol. I run from love. I live for anything other than God. I run from the hesed, steadfast love of God. I'm forsaking my hope of that love. I'm running from it, he says. It's insane to do. We're so used to alternatives, aren't we? We're so used to options. 
I was at the store the other day trying to find a new laptop. Mine looks like it's about to die. I'm trying to figure out which one I need to get. There's way too many for me to figure out which one I need. I'm walking around. What does this one do? What does this one do? Is this better than this one? I call Michael and try to get him to help me out. I don't know which one I'm supposed to get. Way too many options. I need like one laptop. Just give me one thing and, and I need to type. That's all I got to do. Uh, we all like options. We're used to options. Listen, there are no options when it comes to what you're giving your heart to. God has said there is Him and Him alone. And what Jonah realizes of all the things I could live for, all the other options are frauds. I must live for God and God alone. If I live for anything else, if I pursue alternatives, if I go after options, I'm forsaking the love of God. There's no options with God. There's no alternatives with God. He is the one and only God, that which we must worship, live for, love, serve. He is the only Savior. He is the only Deliverer. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. He's the only one. He's the only one we can live for. And all of us, all the time, aren't we tempted to pursue an idol? Another love? Oh, yes, we can have hobbies and we should. We can enjoy the created world and we ought to. We can enjoy family and friends and those are all great gifts from God and we can enjoy them to God's glory. But when it gets to the underlying motive for all you do, when it gets for that which is driving your life, the motor, the engine that's pushing you forward, what is that? What are you living for? And Jonah had to realize that there's no other options except to live for God. And if he lived for anything else, if he lived for these vain idols, he would be forsaking the steadfast covenant love of God. The world has a lot of options for you. It will spread before you a banquet of poisons that might taste good initially, but eventually result in agony and despair, and even destruction. Jesus Christ offers Himself as the living water. He lived and died for sinners. He rose from the dead, conquering death, sin, and hell itself. He's alive today. He is declared to be the only option for humanity. If you have not turned and trusted in Jesus Christ, He's your only hope. He has paid for your sin on the cross. Should you trust Him, it will all be forgiven. And He invites you even now to come to Him because there are no other options. So here Jonah is. He's in the fish. He's utterly hopeless. He realizes the vanity of his idols. And let's see what happens next. He cries out. He cries out. Verse 2 kind of summarizes the whole of the prayer. And we see right there, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. I called out out of the belly of Sheol. I cried. 
Back down to verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. This is the cry of the despairing. Now, if you remember the, the, the context here, none of the other things got Jonah to pray, but this did. The storm didn't get him to pray. The captain waking him up from his slumber, telling him, hey, call out to your God, inviting him to pray. That didn't get him to pray. The casting of the lots and singling out of Jonah so that it was obvious that he was the problem on the ship. That didn't get him to pray. What got him to pray? It was being in that fish that got him to pray. It was being in that fish drowning and fainting and heaving and dying that got him to pray. God put him there to get him to pray. God put him there on purpose to get him to pray. He had to get so low that he felt so deeply his desperation. I want to ask, do you live life with a sense of desperation? You know that we are, every waking moment, people in desperate need of the grace of God. Every moment. We talk sometimes like, all we've got now is prayer. Like we only pray at the very end when all other options are exhausted. That's certainly what Jonah did here. Of course he had no other options. But isn't it true all the time that we really don't have what it takes to live this life? That we really are utterly desperate for help when it call, comes to obeying all that God has called us to obey in His Word? We're actually always desperate for help. Now, rock bottom is the place where we feel that more, most accurately. Rock bottom is the place where we feel the desperation more acutely. We usually see ourselves more accurately at rock bottom because we're actually always in desperate need. But when we're feeling good, we often don't feel like we're in desperate need. You know, one of the things I've been thinking as we've studied this and we've been looking through this, I've been looking through this text all week, just thinking about the ways it applies to us. One of the things I've come to realize is that you, we need to learn not to wait until we're rock bottom to have a sense of desperation and prayer. We need to learn to pray the moment we encounter the Word of God that's calling us to act. And we need to realize in that moment, I don't have what it takes to obey the Lord. I need the help of God right away. It doesn't have to be this long, get on your knees, praying to God, eloquent, articulate prayers. Rock bottom prayers are usually not that. They're desperate. They're in the moment. I think of uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, you remember the story where the, Nehemiah is the cupbearer cup to the king? Nehemiah wants to go back to Jerusalem because the walls are down. He wants to go back and help his people, but he's working for this king. And, and one day he goes into the presence of the king, and the king recognizes something's wrong with him. He notices on his face, the king asks, what's wrong? And there's this amazing dynamic prayer right there. The king asks, what's wrong? And then the text says about Nehemiah, then I prayed to the Lord of heaven, and then it goes straight to Nehemiah's answer to the king's question. 
What do you notice there is there's a question from a king, there's a response from Nehemiah, and right in the middle there's a prayer. We don't even know what the content of the prayer is. But it was short enough and desperate enough to fit between a question and an answer. I think we've got to adopt that kind of prayer life, right? Because we are always in need of God. We are always desperate, not what just we're in the belly of a fish. Well, you know, think of a list. You know, when's the right time to pray desperate prayers? Okay, waking up, going to work, facing a problem, meeting with others, before I head home, before I walk in the front door. I need divine grace to love my family the way God wants me to before disciplining a child, before sending them to school, before heading to church. We are living for impossible things that we can't possibly do in our own strength. We are always desperate for help. And let's not wait till we're in the worst of situations to ask for help. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand what that means? That means the kingdom is for for those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt. It's not for those people who think they're rich in self-resources to accomplish all the things that they're supposed to do in life. It's for the people who recognize they have nothing. They can't save themselves, certainly, but they also can't live the life God called them to live without help. They're despairing of themselves. They claim moral bankruptcy and they cast themselves at the generosity of God, not once at the beginning of their salvation, but moment by moment. They're beggars every hour calling out for the help of God. That song, I need thee, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Jonah was desperate from the very beginning. He didn't feel it till he was in the belly of the fish, but he was desperate from the very beginning. And I've often wondered how much this story would be different if when the word came to Jonah, instead of running away, he ran to God. He desperately plead, pled with God for help. He asked for strength and courage. He recognized his own inability. It would be a different story. We need to learn to pray. Desperate prayers, regular prayers, like breathing. We inhale the circumstances of life. We exhale prayer. We inhale all the things that are going on around us. We exhale prayer. We're always coming to God in prayer, so we're not like Jonah. Yes, certainly there will be times when we feel utterly hopeless, but that will simply be a reminder of our true condition that we are helpless without God. Here's the fourth thing that happens to Jonah as he's in the belly of the fish. He resolves to obey with thankfulness. Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay, he says. He's come to the conclusion that the dangers of obedience, and there were some dangers in obedience for him to go to Nineveh, the dangers of obedience were not so dangerous as the dangers of his own sin. Have you recognized that? Do you still think you can play around with sin? 
he came to the conclusion that there's much more at It'll cost him much more to continue in sin. So he realizes, oh, I'm not going to do this. To live for anything other than God is folly. To live after idolatry is crazy. And so what I will do, I'll live for the one thing I was made to do with thanksgiving, with a voice of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. He's saying, I'm, I'm in now, God. This is what it's taking for God to bring this man to himself and to obedience. It will take a despair that crushes his self-reliance so that he finally gets to the point that he says, I can't pursue anything else. I must pursue with thanksgiving that which God has called me to do. And notice, with a voice of thanksgiving, it's not dutiful resolve only, although there's duty involved. He says, I, I, I know that to live in any other way is folly. And I will thank the Lord that He has given me a path to walk of obedience. I will sacrifice to Him. I will pay the vows I've made to Him. Our deep roots often grow in wild storms. Storms of life force us to go deep with God. Not many of us have grown dramatically in the sunny days of life when everything's nice and chipper and we feel good about all the things that are going on. Isn't it true that it's when the storms come and the darkness falls and the danger encroaches upon us and fears are at every turn and we feel utterly helpless that we begin to actually see how reliable God is and we grow these roots into His Word. We realize that this is all I have and with thanksgiving then we begin to live our lives for Him. We're going to see that in chapters 3 and 4, Jonah's obedience is not anywhere near perfect. But we do say, see that in this repentance, he is resolving to obey. It's not going to be a perfect obedience, but there's a resolution to obey. And in the dark times of life, God is teaching us to do the same, to resolve to obey because no other options are available to us except to walk in humility and trust of God. And here's the last thing Jonah learns in the belly of the fish. It's that last line of his prayer. It's almost like a shout. It's almost like a declaration. It's almost like a summarization. In fact, some have said that this little statement in the middle of Jonah, at the end of the prayer, is a summary of the entire Bible. Some theologians have said that. John Frame is a longtime theologian, written thousands upon thousands of pages of theological work, later in his life composed a systematic theology, and he titled it this, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah realizes in this desperate condition, salvation is God's. It is His to grant. 
He has hit the depths of despair. He's down as low as he can be. His life is flashing before his eyes. And he comes to the conclusion that man cannot save himself. Only God can save. Salvation is in the hands of God and he could give it to whom he wills. And man cannot save themselves. Salvation does not belong to men. Salvation cannot be earned by man. It cannot be created by man. It cannot be given by man. It cannot be manufactured. Mankind is totally, utterly, completely outside of their ability to attain salvation. It must be God. Only God. And this is what Jonah realizes. Is this so what you could only realize in the, in the position that Jonah's in, in, in utter despair. You realize that we are utterly hopeless and God must grant salvation. Any person who's ever come to know Christ has been in this position where you recognize, I, I, can't, I can't do anything. I'm lost. I've tried to change. I keep falling back into my sin. I've tried to do better, and I fail. I can't. I don't have the resources. I don't have the strength. I'm weak. I can't save myself. This is what Jonah was experiencing. This is what anyone who comes to know God truly experiences. Utter helplessness. But then that God has salvation. It belongs to Him. And He could dispense it to whom He wills. See, God will save whom He will save. We see in Jonah that He will save pagan sailors if He so desires. He will save a cruel city of Nineveh if He so wills. He will even save a rebellious prophet if He decides. And who are we to judge? It's His. He has no obligation to anyone anywhere. He would be just as good and right to allow our sins to send us into hell and to judge us for them. But in His grace and mercy, He has declared that He is a God who saves. And He does not say that He will save only those people who work hard enough, only those people who are wise enough. He saves the humble. He saves the sick and needy. He saves those who are despairing of any self-salvation, self-help. And he saves them in such a way that at the end of the day, they may only say, salvation is all of God and none of me. As theologians have said, we get to the point where we say, all I've contributed to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Salvation is God's. The beauty of this is that at the same time, he can share it with you. The Bible says that Jesus will not turn away sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. And if you have not come, I invite you, I ask you, I would plead with you, come to Jesus Christ and receive the salvation of God. But come knowing that you are not able to do anything on your own. Come and receive it as a gift, not as something you earn. Come, and <laughs> come to Jesus knowing that you're desperate and needy and that He can alone save you. Come to Him. And give credit to God alone. As Jonah does. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what turned him around? And what will it take to get us to stop leaning on ourselves? What will it take for us to stop leaning into our own wisdom? What will it take for us to get to the point where we despair of any ability to lead ourselves and daily cast ourselves in desperation at the grace of God? Often, it takes a taste of despair. And maybe you're in that right now. But it takes also a taste of deliverance, which God offers for those who are trusting Christ. And when we find that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, we resolve, like Jonah, with thanksgiving, to go all in in obedience to Christ. So will you go all in? Have Have you tasted the despair of any other way so that you can live all in with thankful obedience to God? Remember what we read at the beginning, don't touch Christianity unless you're willing to seek the kingdom of heaven first. I promise you a miserable existence if you seek it second. So what's your next step forward in obedience today? Tasting the despair of any other lifestyle, where do you resolve to obey? Maybe it's that you need to seek help from other friends in church. Maybe that it's you need to confess an area of sin that you've been hiding. Maybe there's an area where you know that you need to take the next step forward in pursuing a relationship or offering forgiveness and you need to reach out. Maybe you need to say to someone in the church, here I am, I'm willing to serve, tell me what to do, I'll do anything. What does it mean for you? Like Jonah, we recognize that we're desperate apart from God and His ways. And like Jonah here in his repentance, we say, I will with thanksgiving now honor the Lord with all I've got. And let's be a church that goes all in for Christ. Let's pray. Only by divine help can we do this. Teach us how desperate we are, Lord, apart from you. Let us even taste the despair so that we would learn to rely on you. Break us down that you might build us up. Humble us that you might exalt us. Empty us of pride that we might be filled with your spirit. Only you can do this. We call upon you for help. Amen.